I'll be picking up on my occasional series on 2 Corinthians this evening by jumping ahead from where we left off the last time we looked at it, back in October. To review just a little bit, 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth over several issues, one of the biggest being that the church in Corinth has been listening to false apostles who oppose Paul. And now that church is questioning the trustworthiness of Paul and of his apostleship. Paul begins his letter by talking about how God works in the midst of despair and comfort, and how true godly love is steadfast, but also adapts in its expression to the changing situations it faces. He discusses a difficult pastoral issue in Corinth in chapter 2, and goes on to describe his apostolic ministry as being like a captive, conquered in battle, but now gladly serving as a slave of his new Lord, Christ. Paul begins chapter 3 by saying that the authenticity of his ministry is not written in ink, but on human hearts, particularly the hearts of those he's ministered to, the Corinthians. Paul goes on from there to discuss the nature of his new covenant ministry, and that then brings us to our text that we'll be looking at tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In this letter so far, Paul has responded to questions about his ministry, to doubts the Corinthians have about him by describing the messiness of true ministry and the humble form that it usually takes. After beginning his defense, Paul now turns to the topic of discouragement. And this is understandable in light of the troubles Paul faced in general during his ministry, but it's especially fitting in the context of his needing to write this letter to the Corinthians. Paul has poured himself into this church. He has served them. He has suffered for them. And now they're doubting him. They're doubting both his effectiveness and even his sincerity. Discouragement is a natural response to that. But Paul interestingly writes here about why he is not discouraged. So that in mind, let's hear from our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. In our text, Paul addresses the issue of discouragement when we serve or minister to another person. As we said, given the context of this letter, we would not be that surprised if Paul was discouraged, if he had, to some degree, lost heart when he heard of the Corinthians' growing suspicion of him. But instead, Paul begins with the bold assertion that he is not discouraged. In verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been given this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He goes on in verse 2 to say, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. 
and to explain what he means by that. Verse 2 might seem like an odd follow-up to verse 1, but it actually makes sense where it is. Paul says that he has not resorted to underhanded ways of promoting his message. And when does someone generally resort to underhanded or deceptive ways? Well, they usually do that when they're discouraged over whether or not honest and straightforward ways are going to work. It's discouragement with the results of doing something legitimately that often leads someone to try doing it illegitimately. But Paul asserts here that he has not lost heart. And part of the evidence for that is that he has not resorted to the types of things people do when they do lose heart. Paul asserts that he's not lost heart, but even by bringing it up, he is in a sense acknowledging that such discouragement would be an expected temptation in his circumstances. He's agreeing that losing heart would not be an unusual response to the situation he's in. Paul understands that discouragement may be a natural response when facing a situation like this. And we've all experienced that kind of discouragement ourselves, haven't we? We've all been discouraged when we minister to, when we serve or care for someone, especially if they respond with indifference or even hostility. Reminds me of a passage actually from the Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, Dostoevsky describes people coming to speak to a monk in the novel named Elder Zosima. And one person who comes to see him is Madame Koklikov. And Madame Koklikov is discouraged by the state of her heart, by her spiritual state. She's thought a lot about what it means to love others, and she sees some of the obstacles that are present in her own character. Elder Zosima talks to her about active love, love that actively works and serves others, love that is itself a service and a ministry. And this is what Madame Kokrakov says in response. She says, active love, that's another question. And what a question, what a question. You see, I love mankind so much that, would you believe it? I sometimes dream of giving up all, all that I have, of leaving lies and going to become a sister of mercy. I close my eyes, I think and dream, and in such moments I feel an invincible strength in myself. No wounds, no festering sores could frighten me. I would bind them and cleanse them with my own hands. I would nurse the suffering. I am ready to kiss those sores. Elder Zosima interrupted her. It's already a great deal and very well that you, that you, you dream of that in your mind and not of something else. Once in a while, by chance, you may really do some good deed. Yes, but could I survive such a life for long, the lady went on heatedly, almost frantically as it were. That's the main question. That's the most tormenting question of all. I close my eyes and ask myself, could you stand it for long on such a path? And if the sick man whose sores you are cleansing does not respond immediately with gratitude, but on the contrary, begins tormenting you with his whims, not appreciating and not noticing your philanthropic ministry, if he begins to shout at you, to make rude demands, even to complain to some sort of superiors, as often happens with people who are in pain, what then? Will you go on loving or not? And imagine the answer already came to me with a shudder. If there's anything that would immediately cool my active love for mankind, that one thing is ingratitude. In short, I work for pay and demand my pay at once. That is praise and a return of love for my love. 
Otherwise, I'm unable to love anyone. As Dostoevsky often does so well, he takes some of the complex and often hidden realities of the human heart and he displays them for us in honest, somewhat stark terms. We may not feel exactly as Madame Koklikoff does, but I think if we're honest, we share at least some of her feelings, some of her temptations. We too feel deep discouragement when we pour ourselves out in service and receive ingratitude back in return. Or when we serve and minister to someone and we see little fruit result from it. When we try to love someone and they respond to our work with disdain or indifference. We too feel deep discouragement. We lose our motivation. We lose heart, as Paul puts it. And we wonder if we can continue with the work. I want you to consider this evening where you see this in your life. In what relationship or ministry you face this kind of discouragement, or at least the potential for this kind of discouragement. And when I say ministry in this context, I mean the term fairly broadly. If you are a Christian, trusting in Christ and anointed by baptism, then you are a member of God's priestly people. You are called to serve as a priest to other Christians and to the world as a whole. Of course, there is a special priesthood of ministers within God's people, but from the book of Exodus onwards, God has also identified a general priesthood of all members of his people. And as a royal priesthood, we Christians each have places where we serve. Places where we are God's instruments to bring love and help and healing, both to other Christians and to non-Christians. It could be with a peer or with someone we minister to who's less mature than we are. It could be in an organic relationship or in a formal ministry. It could be to a Christian or to a non-Christian. But each of us have those relationships, those ministries to other people. And so we each have peers that we minister to, friends or acquaintances, fellow church members or co-workers, family members or spouses, people whom we are called to love well, to be an instrument of Christ to, to be a means of expressing God's love. Who are those people who you minister to in that way? And how do you encounter the type of discouragement described here by Madame Koklikov. Who in this category has responded coldly to your attempts to serve them? Who have you been discouraged by when you pour yourself out for them, but you see little or no growth? Maybe a friend who seems to be stuck in a bad pattern of life. Maybe a spouse who you're trying to love well, but who right now seems to be responding only with coldness. Who are the peers that you're called to minister to right now, but may be feeling discouraged about? Who are you maybe beginning to lose heart over? In addition to peers, we also often minister to those who are less mature than we are. The most obvious category for many of us is our own children. We're called to minister and to serve our children, to be their primary providers of their physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs, and it can be incredibly discouraging work. They can be quite ungrateful and even cruel. And it does not take long to become discouraged, to lose heart, to wonder why things aren't going better, to wonder what we're doing wrong. And finally, in addition to these natural and organic relationships, we may also have some sort of formal ministry that we're a part of, whether teaching Sunday school or working with our ESL ministry or volunteering your time in some other way. 
But whatever it is for you, whether it's formal or informal, to a Christian or a non-Christian, to a peer, a child, or someone else, ask yourself where in your ministry you have experienced discouragement, where you have poured yourself out but seen no fruit as a result, or maybe even received a negative response of coldness or indifference or anger. We're reminded this evening that in his own ministry, Paul faced similar and, in fact, probably greater reasons for discouragement than we do. And in Corinth, especially, as the people he poured himself out for, served sacrificially and suffered for, now questioned whether he should really be trusted or even listened to, and considered in stealth allying themselves with his enemies. But it's in the midst of that situation that Paul tells us that he does not lose heart. And we should probably ask, well, why not? Why wouldn't you lose heart in that situation? Why wouldn't he be discouraged? And thankfully, Paul gives us an answer. He tells us why he does not lose heart. And his reasoning applies to us as well. What we see from Paul in this text is that as we minister to others, we must remember our enemy, our message, and our position. We learn from Paul that if we want to combat discouragement we feel when we minister to and serve others, and when they hurt or are hurt or reject or they're indifferent to us, then what we need to do is to remember our enemy, our message, and our position. And so we'll look at those three elements this evening as they come up in our text. So first, if we're to combat discouragement in our ministry and our serving other people, we first have to remember our enemy. We see this in verses 3, or three and 4. Paul writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul begins his explanation of why he's not discouraged by pointing to the fact that he has a cosmic enemy, Satan, who is actively opposing his work, who is veiling the hearts of some of the people he's ministering to. Now, that might strike us as odd at first. How would knowing that we have a cosmic enemy fight off discouragement when a ministry in our lives seems fruitless? It reminds me, oddly enough, of an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. That, that's a little bit odd. Just bear with me for a moment. On the show, the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond, there's a regular tension point over the fact that Ray's mother, Ray the main character, his mother Marie is a great cook, but Ray's wife Deborah is not that great of a cook, and this causes conflicts on regular intervals. There's one episode, it's called Marie's Meatballs, where Ray goes to ask Marie if she would help and teach Deborah how to cook meatballs the way that Marie does. And Marie says that she'll do it. She shows up that afternoon with a box of all the supplies, all of the ingredients and spices that they'll need, and they spend the afternoon cooking. Deborah doing all the work while Marie watches and talks her through it. That night at dinner time, Deborah serves the meatballs to Ray. He takes a bite and he tells her that they're great. And he convinces her at first until she catches him trying to spit it out behind her back. It turns out that they're actually not so good. And Deborah spends the rest of that night agonizing over what could have gone wrong, why the results were so off from what she expected. She's upset, she's confused and frustrated and certainly discouraged. Finally, after not being able to figure out what went wrong, Deborah gives up. 
Ray comes down in the middle of the night and finds her in the kitchen gathering up all the supplies and spices that Marie, her mother-in-law, had brought over that afternoon and loading them back into the box to return them to her. Deborah is giving up on being a good cook. But as she picks up one of the bottles of spices that Marie had brought her, the label falls off. And Deborah sees that there is another label underneath it. She sees that what was actually a bottle of tarragon had been intentionally mislabeled as basil. Someone had glued a label for basil over the original label for tarragon. And it all comes together. Marie, not wanting to be matched or outdone by Deborah, had sabotaged her. She had mislabeled a spice so that Deborah would use the wrong thing and it would ruin the meatballs. In that moment, Deborah learns that in the kitchen, she has an enemy. She realizes that she's been sabotaged by, as she puts it, an evil genius. But Deborah's first response to this new information is not an increase in discouragement. It's actually relief. Deborah is relieved. In fact, she's almost giddy. Now, why is that? Why is Deborah happy and relieved to learn that she has an enemy? Well, because the fact that Deborah has an enemy means that the poor results were not necessarily her fault. In fact, it means that it can both be true that she did just what she was supposed to as a cook and that the meatballs still came out badly. As odd as it might sound, Deborah's discouragement is removed for one of the same reasons that the Apostle Paul's is. Paul, too, has worked hard, much harder. He has ministered to and served others. He has preached the gospel, but his ministry has sometimes, in fact, frequently been rejected by others. If Paul and those he were ministering to were the only ones involved, then we might begin to think that the cause of the fruitlessness in his ministry was Paul, that he was responsible for the failure of others to respond to his work. But Paul points out that he and those he's ministering to are not the only ones involved. They're not the only ones who are active. Paul has a cosmic enemy who is actively working to sabotage Paul's work. Satan is actively working to put a veil over the hearts of those that Paul serves. And because he knows that, when things go badly, Paul does not lose heart. Because he knows that it can both be true that he has ministered faithfully and that those he's ministered to have responded to him with indifference or even at times rejection. So think again of that relationship, that ministry where you might be discouraged. Do you think about the fact that you have an enemy in that ministry? Do you think about how, as you try to serve that other person, a cosmic enemy is trying to thwart your work. The implications of that are important. It means that an individual or a church can faithfully serve someone, can love them well, and that person could still, in the end, bear little fruit or even reject the ministry that they've received, and that such a response is not necessarily the fault of those who serve them. It means that you can love a friend, a family member, or a spouse well, and they can respond negatively. And it's not necessarily your fault. Because as much as your work may be good and faithful, it's not the only work being done. Someone else is fighting against you. And the final result is not, at the end of the day, fully within your control. It also means that we can parent our children well, but that our parenting will not guarantee that things will always go well or always go easily, or that they will be free from sin. It means that when they go through a period of struggle or of 
increased disobedience, it is not necessarily the result of a failure on our part. Our part is to continue to parent them faithfully. But a child is not a machine. It's not just a matter of pulling the right levers, and if we do it just right, they will come out perfect. We, of course, know that. But there is a battle over our children's hearts, just as there is often over our own. God gives us his covenant promises, and that should give us confidence. That should help us. It does help us. But from day to day and season to season, there is still the battle. And in fact, those promises fit within the context of that daily battle, that daily back and forth. When we expect that, when we know that we have an enemy working against the work we put into our children, then we will not be as shocked or discouraged when our hard work does not bear immediate fruit in their lives. Now, of course, we want to see progress in those we minister to, especially the people who are close to us, who we love. And our desire to see them grow does not change. But realizing that our ministry to them is in the context of a battle with Satan can at least help us adjust our expectations. Imagine you arrive one morning at the north end of a field. You decide that your goal is to head south and to move that day as far south as you can. And after an entire day of trying to fulfill that goal, you make it only one mile south from where you started. Now, how you view that amount of progress depends wholly on the context within which it happens. If you're just a person traveling, whether by foot or by bike or by car, then one mile is probably kind of pathetic for a full day's work. But if you're a soldier who's part of an army, who's working hard to push back a well-armed and well-fortified enemy, then advancing one mile may be a great success. And so it is with those we serve and love and minister to. When we realize our service to them is part of a battle over their hearts, we see the results differently. And if our results for the moment are small, or for a season even seem to be negative, if we view them in the context of a battle, we will not be nearly as discouraged as we would be if we thought we were working without opposition. So first, Paul reminds us that we have an enemy. Next, Paul reminds us of our message and our position. He does this in verse 5. He writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. The word translated servant in this verse is often and possibly more accurately translated slave. Paul here reminds us of our message and our position. First, he reminds us that we do not preach ourselves, we preach Christ. Our ministry is not about us. Our care for and love for others at the end of the day is not about us, it is about our King. And so far from our work being about us, so far from it being about self-promotion, Paul says that as heralds of Christ, as messengers of the King we are servants to, we are slaves to those that we serve, not for their sake, but for Jesus' sake. We as Christians, Paul affirms, are slaves of Christ. And Christ has given us the task to go out and witness to others of his kingship, to proclaim his kingship both by our words and our deeds. Paul reminds us that as Christ's slaves, we proclaim not ourselves, but him. And then Paul adds that part of our commission, part of our calling, is to serve those whom we make our proclamation to as slaves for Jesus' sake. Not because those we serve have such a right over us, but because Jesus, our true master, 
has called us to that. And so Paul shows us that we must remember our message and our position. Our message is Christ. Our position is to serve those we minister to as slaves for Jesus' sake, because he is our master. Gregory the Great was one of the last church fathers of the patristic period. He was the bishop of Rome from 590 to 604. He's actually the second most cited church father by John Calvin in his institutes. And Calvin refers to him as the last true or genuine bishop of Rome. Gregory was a man who tried to live out what Paul is talking about in this text. That's part of the reason Calvin liked him so much. Contrary to what some people argue, historically, the Roman bishop did not have unquestioned supremacy in the early church. In fact, there were often power struggles between several of the top bishops or patriarchs in the church at that time. One bishop who regularly vied for supremacy at the time was the patriarch of Constantinople. And during the time while Gregory was bishop of Rome, the bishop of Constantinople took to himself the title ecumenical patriarch. And by doing that, he essentially claimed supremacy over all of the other leaders of the church. Gregory publicly condemned that title, but he did not respond, as others might in the future, by ascribing that title, or maybe a greater title, to himself. Instead, he insisted on referring to himself with the title, Servant of the Servants of God. Gregory did not want to preach himself. He instead saw himself as a slave to others for Jesus' sake. But beyond that, Gregory wanted other pastors to see themselves that way too. Gregory wrote a book intended to be used in the training and the direction of bishops and pastors. It's often titled Pastoral Care or the Pastoral Rule. In it, Gregory warns about the dangers of making our ministry about us instead of about Christ. And this is what he writes. He says, that man is an enemy of his Redeemer, who on the strength of his good works he performs, desires to be loved by the church rather than by Christ. Indeed, a servant is guilty of adulterous thought if he craves to please the eyes of the bride when the bridegroom sends gifts to her by him. In truth, when this self-love captures one's mind, it sometimes rushes him into inordinate laxity, sometimes into asperity. Now, what is Gregory saying here? Gregory compares one who is serving someone else as a Christian to a servant whom a bridegroom employs to send a gift to his bride. The task of such a servant is not to draw attention to himself, but to faithfully serve his master, the bridegroom, and in doing that, to draw the bride's thoughts and gaze to her groom by delivering the gift that the bridegroom sends to the servant. Imagine, though, Gregory says, that the servant instead tried to get the bride to notice him rather than notice the bridegroom. Such a servant would be an unfaithful one. He would be an adulterous servant. That, says Gregory, is what is happening when a pastor wants his church to notice and admire him for his ministry rather than wanting them to be more enamored with Christ as a result of his ministry. And it's a point that extends to all of us. It's a point that should strike all of us as incredibly accurate as a summary of what we are doing in our hearts when we make any ministry or service to other people about us. And it should cause us to reflect as we begin to realize how often it is we might actually do that. How often we make our service about people noticing us 
and so tried to divert the bride's gaze from the bridegroom and onto ourselves. Gregory says that in addition to the unfaithfulness involved, approaching our ministry this way will have other effects on us too. It will make us lazy and self-satisfied when we get good results, and it will make us frantic and discouraged when we get bad results. And we can often see this in our ministry to others. We can be so quick at times to make things about us rather than about Christ. And so every success becomes a trophy for us, and every failure becomes a condemnation of us. We act as if we are the message, as if we are the focus or we are the central person in the interaction, rather than seeing ourselves as slaves, as servants who are pointing to the bridegroom, pointing to the king. How do you tend to do that? Where do you see that dynamic playing out in your life? Maybe just one example will suffice. For those of you with children, whether younger or older, when they publicly do something that they should not, what's your response generally like? Whether they're teenagers or adults or, and they do something wrong publicly, something either sinful or foolish, or if they're younger and they misbehave at school or at church or at someone else's house, or if maybe they're younger than that and they decide that the middle of a sermon is a good time to be defiant and throw a fit. If you stop and think about your reaction to them, how much of it is about your concern for their relationship to Christ? And how much of your response is about what other people might be thinking about you in that moment? In our response to situations like this, we get a glimpse of how much we are concerned about the message of Christ and serving our children for Christ's sake and how much we are concerned with how we look to others. Gregory tells us that our mind should be on our task that our master has given us. In this case, raising, loving, nurturing, and rebuking our children well. And so we should be so focused on that, on directing their eyes to Christ, that we become self-forgetful. That we act as if it's not about us. But instead, Gregory wants us to admit that we're often like the adulterous servant. Trying to catch the eye of other people for ourselves instead of directing their gaze to him. Wanting, for example, our children to behave so that we look admirable to others. Viewing our lives as Gregory and ultimately as Paul want us to is not an easy lesson to learn. It's not a single decision, but a lifelong discipline. But Paul encourages us here to pursue it. It is something we must pursue both for the good of those we serve and also for our own good. Because the more we pursue it, the better we will be at pointing others to Christ. And the more that we view our life this way, the less discouragement we will feel as we fulfill God's call for our lives, when it goes well and when it goes badly. Because every rejection, every lukewarm response, every failure will not be viewed by us as a verdict about our worth. But it will be seen as another call to direct our own eyes and the eyes of others to the master whom we serve. So we remember our enemy, our message, our position. How do those three things come together in the end? I think once more, the picture of a battle may be helpful for us. So we've already said that we need to remember our enemy, that we're not just a man or a woman trying to walk up a hill, but we are soldiers trying to take a hill under enemy fire when we minister to others. 
Second, we do what we do for a bigger cause than our own. We fight not to take the hill in our own name. We serve not for our own glory, but we fight for a cause much bigger than ourselves. We fight for the name of Christ. We serve for his glory. And so the outcome of the battle is not finally a verdict on us. It is about the advancement of Christ and his kingdom. Third, we remember our role. We are humble soldiers. Some of us may have a bit more authority over a few others, but none of us is the commander. None of us is the king. And that last point is important. Because the fact, in the face of a cosmic enemy, we can find a new kind of discouragement. We can wonder if we have any hope of making any progress at all, of seeing any fruit from our work. Who are we, after all, against such an enemy? But that is where we're reminded, and where Paul will remind us, of the power and the wisdom of the one whom we fight for. A soldier need not have a plan to ultimately win the war. A soldier knows his duty and his job is to serve faithfully. He trusts those over him to bring the power and the wisdom to bear that's necessary to win the war. In the same way, we must trust Christ, our King. Paul ends this passage by reminding us of the power at the command of our king. In verse 6, he writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Alluding both to his own miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, where he saw that light, and also indirectly to every ordinary conversion, every case where God works to change someone's heart, Paul reminds us that the same power that created the universe is at our king's disposal for changing both our own hearts and the hearts of those whom we serve. We serve a king who is powerful when we are not. And when we are ministering to others at his service, he is there and he's also at work. Yes, we have an enemy, but we also have an all-powerful king. Another way to think of it is this. Earlier in this letter, you may remember Paul put our personal conflicts in the context of a cosmic battle in order to show us how significant they really are. But here, Paul puts our ministry, our service, in the context of a cosmic battle in order to show us that the weight is not all on our shoulders. We have a great king who bears it with us. And an important implication of this viewpoint is that we're not just a soldier on the battlefield trying to take a hill from an enemy. It means that we also have a direct communication line to our commander and king. And we can plead with him to throw his resources into taking that hill that he's called us to fight for in his service. In prayer, we have the ear of our king. We can plead with him and ask him for his help, and he hears us. We do not always know how he will respond from one case to another, but we know three things. We know that he is powerful. We know that he is trustworthy. And we know that he wants us to bring such things to him in prayer. And so whatever situation of service or ministry you face, view it as Paul does. Remember that you have an enemy. Remember that you fight for Christ's kingdom and not your own. Remember that you cannot yourself control the final outcome of that person whom you serve. But remember also that you serve a God who can. And so take those things to heart. Love well, serve faithfully, pray often, trust God, and do not lose heart.
Amen.